All right, well, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are good to us. You are gracious and kind and that your love for us doesn't depend upon our performance, that we don't have to, we can't earn your favor, but you give it to us freely by your grace. And I thank you that we can walk in it, that you've given us your love and your forgiveness through Jesus Christ, that our sins can be atoned, that we can have new life and hope, uh, and help us to walk in newness of life. Just as Jesus rose from the dead glorified, may our lives reflect your glory as you live through us. Please speak to us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit so that we can hear your voice today in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. One thing in the Gospels you find is Jesus was always up for the task. He never was overwhelmed by anything. He had wisdom. Like I, I went back a couple of chapters chapters of Luke just say, well, what's happened? Because we do break it down a bit. I want to go a little bit more in depth. I don't want to rush through it. I, uh, I, I think there's great things to mine from the Word, but you can almost lose a little bit of the pace of how quickly things happen, where all this happened in a day. Like, there's a lot of things that can happen in a short period of time, and we break it up over a, a few weeks because we want to learn more. But in, in just a short period of time, he, he rebuked demons, he rebuked a fever, he cleansed lepers, he forgave sins, he healed a paralytic, um, and now it's like part of that day continues today where he calls Levi. And it's like he's touching the untouchable, he's curing the incurable, he's going to the people who were outcast in the society and, and saying to them, follow me. You're the one I'm choosing to follow me. And uh, we see him change the perspective of fishermen who were calling him master to saying, Lord, and leaving all to follow him. And then Jesus, he, has, he is God. He has the power of God, and yet he humbled himself to be a man. He's teaching with absolute authority, but not proud. He's humble. The fame of Jesus had spread throughout the land. All these religious leaders came to hear him teach. And it's like, you've ever read a book that, it started out really well, like grab your attention, but about halfway through you're like, ah, why am I reading this book? It's just not that interesting. It's not really gripping me. Uh, it's, it's, all the good ideas were put out there at the beginning, and this is just kind of not as great. That's not like Jesus. He didn't just start with a flash or a bang, and everyone's like, wow, who's this? It's like the mo every day he added to his fame. He added to the great deeds that he did. And the people who followed him, it just confirmed that his worthiness to be followed. And everyone who hated him, they had more chance to hate him, to try to find fault with him. But there was no fault in Christ. There was no point of ignorance, weakness, sin, hypocrisy, and he was under constant scrutiny. No one could find the weak spot, and they tried. They were looking for it. And his love towards all, his desire to stay, say, was in stark contrast to the Pharisees who condemned others to justify themselves. So we reach Luke 5, 27. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. It's good to take note of introductory words where it says, after these things, the day began in verse 17 in Capernaum where he was teaching in the house and it was too full to, for people to come to Jesus. So 
those men brought this paralyzed man, tore open the roof, let, led him down in front of Christ who forgave his sins, much to the amazement of everyone, the confusion of the Pharisees are like, this is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God? And so Jesus says, what's easier to say? To say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? So you know I have the power to forgive sins, and that I'm God. I say to you, rise and walk. And the man did. And it said people were amazed. They said, this is crazy what we've seen today. So after this meeting, Jesus went out, and he saw a tax collector named Levi called Matthew in the Matthew 9-9 account. And it's really remarkable that he asked a publicani or a tax farmer to follow him. Now, a little history on the taxation in Rome. The monopoly of taxation was put out to auction to individuals for a period of time. It could be a year, it could be five years. But someone who wanted to buy the rights to collect taxes would pay money up front to have taxation over a region for a time. It was a loan that went right into the treasury of the Romans, and they would pay interest on it back to the, the tax man. So they didn't have the burden of administration. That fell to someone who had already prepaid to do it. So they were getting paid. They were getting money from the provinces that they couldn't oversee. They were such a vast kingdom at that time. So at the end of five years, let's just say, Say Levi had paid a million dollars to collect taxes from the Capernaum region for five years, and he's the only one who can do that. Well, he gives them a million dollars. They will, take, they will pay interest on that million dollars that they've been holding all that time, but any money that he receives, it's his. He gets to keep that. And uh, the risk was that you wouldn't recover the amount of money that you spent, but you had the power of the Roman government and military behind you to do as you wished. Josephus wrote of a case where a, uh, a tax collector had 20 um, notable citizens killed and their assets seized. Who owns it now? He does. So... People hated the tax collectors, especially Jewish tax collectors, because they were profiting off of their own people, taking advantage of the situation for their own personal gain, and they were extremely wealthy. The Jewish Encyclopedia says that tax gatherers, anyone, so anyone also in their extended family, was not allowed to be a judge or a witness in a court case, and they were also, in many cases, banned from synagogue. So they were like... Don't come around here. We don't want you. We don't like you. So Jesus goes up to one and he says, follow me. The leper, remember, the leper's condition, he was unclean. He had to live outside the camp. The, uh, Ill, the paralyzed man, he was unable to help himself, even come to Christ. And, and now we see this tax collector that Jesus goes to and says, follow me. He breaks all these social stigmas, Jesus does. They were amazed when that paralyzed man got up and carried his bed. I wonder if they were just as amazed that Levi, who they wrote off as a greedy, selfish man, got up and followed Jesus too. You guys know in maths, the order of operations is really important. You know, the brackets and what you add and subtract first and 
or multiply. There's an order of operations that if you neglect that, you don't get the right answer. Well, it's the same thing interpreting the Bible and in following Jesus. There's a very important order here in verse 28. It says, so he left all, rose up, and followed him. The order's pretty telling. He left all at Christ's command even before he stood up out of his chair. He made a decision. He made a decision to leave behind all the money he had invested, all the money that he had paid that he was not going to recover if he left his position. He, he made a decision to leave this very, it was a powerful government position and a lucrative career, the security that he had in that position. And he realized that call to obedience required him to, to follow Jesus exclusively. He couldn't be serving Rome or himself and also follow Jesus. So he left all, rose up, and followed Jesus. He counted the cost of following Jesus and valued that privilege as greater than any financial compensation or recovery that he could have, any social status. And it's good when we come to this place that, that Jesus, we value him over everything. He's more important. Um, followers of Jesus should not be proud of what we've sacrificed in order to follow Jesus, but be humbled that he would choose to call us. Think, well, I left this, or I paid that, or I gave this up, and it was a great thing. Well, it's because Jesus is great that he left all, rose up, and followed him. And Paul asked, what do you have that you had not first received? Right? What do we have that God didn't first give to you? So it's really, he's the generous and gracious one, not us, in leaving all to follow him. So he leaves his dreams, his business contract, his financial goals, and his debt to entrust himself to Christ, who loved and accepted and chose him, who came to him and just said, follow me. He didn't tell, even say why he should follow him. He just says, follow me. And he did. And he embarks on this new life. He, he had likely some debts, um, at least what he had paid to become a tax collector that he wasn't recovering. But he had a clean ledger with God. Like all the, the red in his ledger was, was clean because of Jesus who forgave him, in whom he had eternal life through trusting in him. And you could say, well, think of the good he would have done, perhaps, had he stayed in that position and, and used that money for the Lord. But having money is not going to transform your heart. Even if he became a billionaire philanthropist that gave uh, to good causes, it would not affect the same change as following Jesus and being born again. Verse 29, then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi was a wealthy man. He threw a large party for Jesus in his house, a great feast to celebrate this great turn to celebrate the, his master that he now followed. And it says a great number of tax collectors and others sat with him. Now, God had provided in the law um, 
directives concerning what was a clean animal to eat and something that was unclean, the way it needed to be prepared. And people were very careful to avoid unkosher foods, foods that would make you unclean. So there were many things like that in the law, like touching a dead body, touching a leper, um, an unclean object. It was like in touching that thing, it passed uncleanness to you, and that affected your relationship with God, your relation to him. Uh, and it jeopardized your standing with God, and so it, it would also be expensive. It would be time-consuming. You would need to do the ritual cleansing. You would have to pay the sacrifice. So it could be that you would be much more concerned about, like, oh, another lamb, you know, that's getting a bit expensive. I need to knock this off, rather than I need to walk and live in the way that pleases God, right? We, you could have a self-serving motive for not wanting to be ceremonially unclean. So they're washing their hands according to tradition, just to play it safe, to make sure they're doing things the right way. And to this day, it's not uncommon for Orthodox Jews to refuse to eat meat that hasn't been personally overseen the slaughter by their rabbi. They want their rabbi to be watching when all this process is taking place and going, okay, I put my stamp of approval, that was slaughtered in accordance with the law. It's safe for you to eat. Eating with other people in the Jewish culture, so it wasn't just what you ate, but who you ate with that made a difference because you were joining yourself. There was a sort of union that you were entering into. You were affirming your food was kosher. You were affirming they were culture. They were kosher, that they were living up to the standard. And so, therefore, to eat with an unclean person, you were defiling yourself according to their view. Remember in Acts how controversial it was for just a Jew to eat with a Gentile. And the Christians were totally stumbled over this at the beginning. So the scribes and Pharisees, they're looking at this and they're saying, how is it that you're eating with them? If you're a righteous man, how could you do that? No one would. And Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He draws a comparison between sick people who have need of a doctor and sinners who need to repent. A sick person has a need for doctor's care. It's the injured and the unconscious person at a scene of an accident that needs the medic's help. It's not the person who, uh, usually, the person who witnessed the accident is sitting in their car and dialed triple zero and said, there's an emergency. They're not the ones who need the chest compressions and their vitals taken. It's the person who's trapped. They need the help, right? So the ambulance arrives and they go to the person in need immediately. The worst need is dealt with. So like a medic attending to the wounds of the injured, Jesus goes to those who have need of repentance. Repentance always precedes forgiveness. It's true the tax collectors were sinners, so it makes perfect sense for the Savior to seek them out, but unknown to the Pharisees, they were describing themselves, weren't they? Like, as it says, it would be just as bad from a spiritual vantage point to say, why are you eating with Pharisees? Those self-righteous folks who think they're righteous before God, but they're not. Who are proud that they're better than that tax collector. Right? It's a fair question. But the reality is they all needed repentance. We all are sinners. We all need a savior. We all need forgiveness. When Jesus touched the leper, he didn't get leprosy. He cleansed the leper. When Jesus was around sinners, their uncleanness and their defilements did not stick to him because he was, a, he was able to forgive them and make them whole. 
He's able to restore them, able to save them. So he could not be corrupted by sin. When the light of the world shines, it's like the darkness must flee. Now we learn, because it's, it's one thing to look at this in context of the Jewish culture, but we get this. This is part of our lives too, and our mindset that can come into our Christian walk. We learn that we, it's, it's a job to clean the body and to keep the body clean. I think that's why a lot of little kids and maybe even teenagers, maybe even some older people, just say, you know, it's just too much. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of water. I'd rather just stay clean and avoid having to take a shower, uh, you know, take two or three showers in a day. I've already taken my shower. I don't want to do that, so I'm going to avoid getting clean. It's an unpleasant chore. We avoid activities that are going to splatter our nice clothes. Now, I I went to the archives, and I found a great picture uh, to support this. I have a picture of my cousin, my brother, and me. Um, Here you go. Uh Uh-huh. So it started out pretty innocuously at the beginning. There was a big mud puddle, and my brother and my cousin, they got their gumboots on. They started kind of tromping through it, and then one falls over. The other falls over, and then they're rolling, and... And then it just, it escalated quickly. But as you can see, I am wearing this white jumper. And I, I, we did not get permission to get into the mud. And I did not want to get in trouble because I'm thinking, if I get this shirt dirty, I'd get in trouble. Now, I would have had a lot of fun sliding around in the mud, but I didn't because I didn't want to get in trouble. Right? Has anyone else been there? Like... Not really sure. I don't want to get. I don't want to make people mad. You know, don't want to get people upset. I don't think my mother would approve. And this kind of approach, it filtered into the minds of people. Like, oh, I, I want to avoid sin, uncleanness, not because I wouldn't enjoy it, but because I don't want anyone to see me. I don't want people to think badly of me. I don't want to um, jeopardize my standing with them. Sin, it attracted a steep price beyond the expense of a sacrifice. It was being shunned and ostracized in a culture. It meant bad business. It meant people disowning you and treating you like you were dead. It, was, it, it hit hard. And, it was, and so it's like, don't associate with people that aren't approved by your rabbi. You don't want that sticking to you. There was a stigma. And during that short-lived mud adventure... I do not remember God entering into my mind once. I didn't stay out of the mud because I wanted to honor God or my parents. It was because I just didn't want to get in trouble. Now, this is common in the church. We can put more emphasis on having a clean exterior, uh, a clean living, rather than obeying God. Uh, The fear of what others think or embarrassment, if we're found out, that could be a stronger deterrent to overt sin than the fear of God. And Paul called out believers for this. Um, They created a system of rules for themselves, and they were self-imposed rules that they observed, and and they put pressure on others to conform to. And they criticized and condemned others, like the Pharisees, who's like, you know, they're condemning Jesus. They're questioning his disciples, like, why do you let them do that? Why are you letting the disciples eat with sinners? Because they didn't, it didn't follow their convictions. Please turn to Colossians 2, 20 to 23. Colossians 2, 20 through 23. 
Now, if you were to look very closely at that picture, and you don't need to show it again, but um, you'll see that I was not squeaky clean. I, had, I was in the mud, too. I mean, there was mud on my pants, and, but like an like a injured person needs a medic, I didn't need to take a bath like my brother and cousin did because they were trashed. Colossians 2, 20 through 23. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why? As though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh." A basic principle of this world is if you slide in mud, your clothes are going to get muddy. It's going to stick to you. And for the Jews, it was if you eat and drink with a sinner, you are unclean by association. But Jesus, instead of keeping his distance and, and keeping a barrier between him and people who needed to repent, he went to them. He spent time with them. He spoke with them to cleanse them and save them. Jesus always obeyed the Father. He was often called out for breaking the tradition of the elders. But remember, he was led by the Spirit. And when we're led by the Spirit, we will not sin. We will walk in the way that pleases God towards love and one another. Back to Luke 5, starting in verse 33. I guess one thing before we move on. We should never allow the fact that Jesus ate and drank with sinners to embolden us to sin in a way that God has told you you are not to. Um, Like our reason for meeting and... So Jesus met with sinners for the purpose of leading them to repentance. Our reason of meeting to eat and drink could be because we want to fit in with them because we want to impress them. We don't, want to, we, want to, we don't want to be different. We want to be like them. Or it's the, really the free drink and the food that we're into. So our motive is not their salvation. Our, mo- our words are not speaking the need for repentance. Our lives are not modeling a need for repentance. But we're using that to kind of justify us living at their level without the fear of God and without the love that God's called us to have. So Jesus, he, he came to call sinners to repentance. It was things, that was what he spoke about. That was how he lived. And so may that be um, also equal in our lives. It wouldn't be a hypocrisy there. Luke five thirty three. Then they said to him, Why did the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. A parallel passage in Matthew says that there were disciples of John who voiced this question, um, as well as these Pharisees, and maybe there was overlap between them. John had preached a baptism of repentance. It was common for them to fast often, to deny the flesh for spiritual pursuits, and Many of the Pharisees, they were unsure if John was a, a prophet or not, but they approved of his clean living, his fasting, his praying. They were like, well, that's good. We like that about him. 
We don't like everything about John, but that we like. Uh, and fasting was a badge of honor. It was a tangible proof of commitment and your piety before God. They, they first questioned Jesus um, as a pious Jew, how he would break custom to eat with sinners. And he said, well, why don't you make your disciples fast? We don't see you fasting. We see you eating and drinking. We see you feasting and celebrating. And remember, in that culture, the Roman culture, feasting was full of debauchery. That was part of the deal. And uh, so they were keeping to their own customs to keep the stain of that practice off of them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pointed out how Pharisees fasted to be seen by men. He had to draw attention to themselves by a disheveled or sad appearance. They go, what's wrong? Oh, fasting, you know, fourth day of this fast. You know, or, or, well, you would be too if you had fasted for 17 days without water. And they're like, oh, wow, you're better than me. And that's like just soothing the pride. Oh, yes, this is, what I, this is my payoff. I don't get to eat food, but at least I can be propped up and made a, like, look at this guy. Well, he fasted all this time. They would go to a feast to tell people they weren't eating. <laughs> what better opportunity to show your piety? You go, oh, aren't you going to have some of that? Oh, no, no, I'm fasting. Today is a fast day. Oh, wow. But remember, the, the, Jesus tells us this story about the Pharisee and the tax collector, and he says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on everything. So these are ways that they kind of prop themselves up and said, I'm better than a tax collector who's a thief and greedy and selfish. When they were just as greedy and selfish, the fact that they weren't eating that day, it didn't, it didn't fix their heart problem of their pride and their selfishness and their greed. We look at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Jesus uses a familiar example, a wedding. So after a, 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 the wedding would be arranged, the, the, the union of the husband and the wife, there would be the betrothal period. They would be betrothed, they're legally married, but they don't live together. And the, the wife would prepare, um, the husband would go to his father's house and build an addition, a room that they would be living at in the future. And at the day when the father said, all right, we're ready for the wedding, the room is up to snuff, you're prepared and ready, go get the bride. So they would get the bride, they would have the wedding ceremony, there would be a consummation, there would be a feast that would go on for days. So it was like years of preparation were leading to this very celebratory moment, and it was so significant. And no one would fast during such a significant feast. In fact, in the law, there are days that they were forbidden to fast. They were forbidden to mourn, like the Day of Atonement. Your sins are forgiven. Celebrate that. So I read it was ancient tradition for the husband and wife to fast until the chuppa. Now, the chuppa is like that uh, canopy that they would be married under, and that was symbolic of them living in the same house now, that she would be brought into her husband's house, and they would live together. So, but after that, then it was time for feasting. So it was like the fast before, but once that wedding was in full force, now it's not the time for fasting. It's for feasting. We've been preparing years for this. This is a time of celebration, not mourning. And you're actually honoring God in celebrating. It's not just honoring God through denying yourself food. So it's a spiritual thing. It's not just what you're doing with your body. 
So the season of waiting was over because Jesus is with them. The friends of the bridegroom are with the bridegroom. He says it's most appropriate that we would be celebrating. We would be delighted with the fellowship of one another during this time because there's been a lot of preparation for this this time of feasting and rejoicing where sinners are forgiven, where the ostracized people are touched and healed and transformed. He says, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. At that time, it must have been rather cryptic to hear him say this. But the day came when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was taken to be crucified. He rose from the dead after three days, and he was seen um, by hundreds during the 40 days that followed. And then Acts chapter 1 says as he's addressing the people on the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day journey from the city, he was taken up into heaven before them while they spoke with him. And they stared in amazement. Acts 1, 10 and 11, it says, And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus was taken up into heaven, but he did not leave his disciples alone. The Holy Spirit would be sent to comfort, to help, to guide into all truth. That he would lead believers in the righteousness of God. He would, he would prompt them to fast in those days, in the days in which we're living. That there is a time for fasting. There is a time for seeking the Lord. And of course, we're to be praying all the time. And it would be looking forward to the day when Jesus takes the church to himself because he's going to do that. And don't we gladly anticipate meeting our Savior face to face? Will that be the day for fasting or feasting? Feasting. The wait is over. We are now with the Lord. What a day. If he sets something before me, I'm going to tuck into it, I'll tell you. Luke 5, 36. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine, immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. Jesus now speaks the first parable that we have recorded in Luke. Teaching with parables, Jesus used a commonly understood thing to point to a spiritual truth. So it's an illustration to teach something spiritual. Um, And parables, they had this, Jesus used it to reveal truth to those who trusted in him and to conceal truth in plain sight from people who did not believe him and were just seeking to find fault with him. And this fulfilled scripture. Um, Jesus, at one point, he spoke a parable and sometimes we'll see his disciples say, what was that about? We don't understand. And Jesus would explain to them. But he says in Luke 8.10, he said, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that Seeing they may see and hearing, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So that was a function of the parables to 
illustrate truth in an understandable way to people of faith, but also um, to conceal truth from those who refuse to believe and humble themselves before the Lord. In many of the parables Jesus spoke, they referred to the kingdom of God, um, which cannot be known apart from the revelation of God. And the kingdom of God has many aspects to it. It's visible and invisible. It's physical and spiritual. It's in temporal, but also eternal. It's an inner work and one that all will see. So all of those are, come into play. It's a complex subject. So Jesus is bringing out different facets of the subject, and the context of the passage is really critical, and the flow of information, who he's talking to, why he's saying it, and how he explains it, that helps us to draw information and understanding to apply to our lives. Because if we don't interpret it correctly, if you say, well, this must mean that, and this means something else, we could have a really messed up and untrue application. The conclusions will be wrong. And he uses two, two examples in one parable to answer their question. And he says, no one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Now, an inexperienced seamstress would make this mistake probably once. Um, if new cloth was used to mend old clothes, which were already shrunk from washing, what would happen when that new cloth was washed, it would shrink and it would cause the fabric to pucker and it would pull away from a hole that was already there and make it larger. It'd make it harder to fix. The second issue Jesus said is mixing the old with the new is that the fabrics won't be the same. The color will be different, maybe the pattern slightly different, and the dye wouldn't match. And so it would make the, the patch more obvious. And this is really cool. Even in Jesus' day, people cared about appearances. They wanted, if they did a mending job, they didn't want people to notice. They wanted to try to conceal it. It'd be kind of like the satisfaction you have, they're complimenting your clothes. Whoa, that's really nice. New outfit, and you're like, mended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a thrift store, you know, like op shop, little alterations. But they're like, oh, that looks brand new. It's great. So he says, well, that's why you don't do that, because you don't want this big pink spot on this white outfit, right? You, you want it to be uniform. The second part, you have wine and wineskins. It was common for wine and other liquids to be carried in an animal skin, usually of a goat. Okay. These skins were prepared. They were flexible. They could stand a bit of pressure where the wine was still fermenting. No one would try to seal and fill it like a, in, if you had a bag that was a bit brittle and old. It had been exposed for a long time to the elements, and you're going to put new wine in it. Well, what would happen is uh, it would split, and you would waste the wine, and you would waste the bag. So the bag could still be used to carry milk and other things, but you wouldn't want to put something that's expansive in that bag because it's just not up for it. Um, so new wine, new wineskins. Old wine, perfect in an old wineskin. And he says, like in the sewing example, he goes a bit further, he says, and no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. Now, doesn't that hit us too? We're like, I like the familiar. I like the usual. I don't like something new. I, I lean to, toward, I prefer something that's familiar to me. It's kind of like if you go into the, uh, 
the barista and you're a regular at the cafe and they say the usual? Or could I interest you in a green tea soy latte? And you're like, oh, you know, I think I'll stick with the usual. That sounds odd. I don't know. Like, I don't know what that is. And, and then I've noticed if I go to a, a place and I don't get the usual, I'm more apt to say, like, I should have got the usual. <laughs> there was a reason why the usual is my usual. It's because I actually like that. And that's my preference. We are creatures of habit. And he's saying, you've been brought up in the Jewish system. You've been brought up under the law. You're not immediately going to understand or even see as appealing the grace of God and the new covenant that I'm ushering in. I'm not coming to patch up the old system, to make a little addition uh, where there's a hole or a rent. I am starting with a new thing, a new covenant through my blood, the gospel. No longer relating to God through law at all. It's now we relate to Christ through his shed blood and his love for us, his forgiveness and salvation. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, John the Baptist was a reformer seeking to bring about repentance among those steeped in the traditions of Judaism. Jesus, however, was not out to patch up an old system. He had come to lead a group out of Judaism into the kingdom based on him and his righteousness. True righteousness is not built on the law or Pharisaic traditions. So John came preaching repentance. He had them baptized. Jesus came preaching repentance, but it was they were supposed to believe in him because that's where we get, that's where the righteousness comes from. The righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. He's addressing people who were born into Judaism. They were circumcised. They were taught of God. They had these laws, the traditions, how to worship God in their society. And Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He compares the law to a tutor or a governess, Paul does, that while God was, while there was this period before the Messiah would come, he gave his people his laws to keep them in the right way, to keep them from sin. It was a revelation of his righteousness. You cannot be made righteous by trying to keep this law, but it, was, it would keep people from sinning. What men did is they began to take this law and use it as a measure of righteousness and add to it to say, well, this is what's pleasing to God. Not just what you do, but why you do it and how you do it and let us fill in the gaps for you because there's a long line of tradition that we hold to. Galatians 3, 23 and 26 says, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, that tutor that raised that child before he became a king or before he attained his position that was allotted to him, do you think he, what, what was his opinion of his tutor having been guarded and protected for all those years? Did he hate him or her? Like, oh, no, there'd be a level of respect there. But the way that you relate to that person has changed now that you're the king and they are the tutor. It's the same way with the law, that we're not to just throw out the law, to disregard the law as useless and of no value when from law comes the knowledge of sin. We wouldn't have known sin except by the law. Paul said, I wouldn't have known coveting was a thing, a sin, because it's so natural for me to do. Unless God said, this is a sin, it was so naturally when the thought that that was a sin. But eating with a sinner, now that, he thought that was a sin, but God changed him. 
He was starting something new. And all of us who are born again today, at one time during our life on earth, we were dead in sins. We were without Christ, we were without hope. And as we've come to Christ in faith, trusting in him, we're still living in a body of flesh. We're still living in a society and a world. We live in a church body with a lot of different people and histories and impacted by traditions of all kinds. And there will be a tendency for us, for the new, to become a bit old, to be, be, be a bit stuck in our ways, in our current understanding of the Scripture, and not open to even Jesus saying anything to us. Um, that's why we need to be not conformed to the world, but to be renewed by the Spirit of our minds. That this is a sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit does, that we embrace. That it's not that we are justifying sin, but we want to honor him in the way that pleases him, not according to traditions or what's put upon you by a culture. And just like new wine is put in new bottles, the Holy Spirit, he fills us and makes us new. He doesn't put the, old, the, the new Holy Spirit in this old man. We're now a new man. So we're to put off the old man and to put on the new man, to live according to this new life that we have. So please turn to Romans 6, 3 through 6. So it follows then that following Jesus and becoming a disciple of Christ is not just to patch up problems in your character or your life, to mend areas that you know are a problem, just like anyone can see a stain or a hole in a shirt. Everyone knows that we are flawed and faulty. It's, it's not, coming to Christ isn't just to try to fix you up a bit. <laughs> You're a new creation in him. You're totally made new. Romans 6, 3 through 6. Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, surely we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing, that, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. The Jews were slaves to sin without Christ, slaves to the law, slaves to Sabbaths, slaves to traditions and, and commands of men to find favor with man and God, seeking that, trying to earn God's favor. But Jesus fundamentally changed the way that we relate to God by ushering in a new covenant built on better promises. It's not through feasting or fasting, but through faith in Jesus. That is key. That is fundamental. That we're walking in newness of life just like the difference between a dead body and then a living, glorified body, that is Christ's life in us. So when you came to Christ, you were made new. You still have this old aging body, but you are new in him. Our lives should change from the usual to a new life that glorifies God by living according to faith in him, because we're seeking him, that we leave all to follow him. 
that he is our Lord and our King. The usual for us all is to focus on ourselves, to benefit self, to please, and to serve self. But our righteousness comes through faith in him. And because we have been made righteous by grace, now we live by grace, walking in his ways, doing what's righteous. Um, Today we remember and proclaim the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 5.8 comes to mind where God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we were undeserving. We had not left all risen up to follow him. We were running away from him. We were opposed to him. We were hating the things of God and yet he came to save. We were like the unclean leper that Jesus touched. We're like the paralyzed people who were in, they could not even come to Jesus. He, he, it was impossible for that paralyzed person to, to do anything for himself. And yet, um, Jesus met him. And we're like a tax collector, a sinner, cut off from the family of God. Sinners who need to repent. And like the Pharisees, self-righteous, full of pride. Like I look at this passage and I see these people and I see like I'm looking in a mirror of myself saying I am that leper. I am that paralyzed person just totally helpless to do anything to please God. I'm like that tax collector, selfish, greedy. And I'm like that self-righteous Pharisee too. Man, I need to repent. Praise the Lord that we can. That we can repent and be forgiven. That he's chosen. So he's touched us. He's commanded us, he's called us, he has loved us, he has reached out to us, and he bids us to follow him. So it's, it's not about us feeling bad about everything, how bad we've been, it's about how good he is, that he has called us, and it's him who's leading us. We've been redeemed by grace through faith, we have been forgiven, we've been made new, we've been washed clean. He is worth following now and forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good and gracious to us that you've sent Jesus to be our Savior. Thank you for the law, Lord, that shows us our, the depth of our sin and our inability to walk righteously. And we thank you that you have brought righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, that there is a new covenant through the blood of Jesus. Um, that demonstrates your love for us, your desire to be with us, and us with you forever. And I pray, Lord, that your goodness and your mercies, that would be inspirational to our walk as we are sanctified, as we choose to follow you, as we do um, leave all and rise up and follow you. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us would do that today, that we would leave all. If there's things that we're holding on to, if there, are, if there are things that we are refusing to let go of, uh, things that have a hold on us and we can't get free, Lord, I pray you would empower us by your grace to leave all, rise up, and follow you at your command. Thank you that you always lead us into truth, that you always lead us righteously, and that we can trust you. Thank you for your word, Lord, and the power of it that you make us you make all things new. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.